chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 as we move into a new chapter but not a new section. As what Peter is talking about in chapter 3 continues the thought of chapter 2. Peter's letter to the elect exiles of the dispersions, we have noted throughout our study of the letter of 1 Peter, is primarily about godly living, right? It's a call to godly living. It's a, an exhortation to godly living. It's a reminder of godly living, especially in the midst of extreme hardship. Now, Peter makes no bones in this letter that the Christian's family, a Christian's destiny is to be grieved by various trials. But those trials are occasions in which God tests the genuineness of the Christian's faith. Persecuted believers must then endure the hardships that they face. But even when persevering through extraordinary suffering, Christians possess a living hope because the gospel has secured for us an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in heaven. And it is the hope of this eternal reward that sustains believers through these trials. In chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 12, Peter instructs the church as to what godly living looks like in particular areas where Christians are most likely to suffer. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, Peter exhorts his readers to submit to the governing authorities who persecuted them. And in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, Peter exhorted Christian slaves to submit to their masters who treated them cruelly and unjustly. So what does this suffering look like for us in the home? Peter turns his attention now there. Peter has been giving examples in society and with slavery. Again, a dynamic that occurs in the home for us applies more to the church. But in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Peter turns his attention to Christian wives who defied cultural norms by embracing a religion different than their husbands. In the face of sure mistreatment, then, how are Christian wives to endure when they face persecution at the hands of their husbands? And how Christian husbands relate to, relate to their wives in a way that honors God? Those are the questions that we're going to look to answer this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So if you look at your passage, your text, and copy of God's Word you have open, you follow along as I read out loud from 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see their respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
This passage, I think you can tell, divides nicely, if unevenly, into two parts. Peter's instruction to Christian wives in verses 1 to 6, and his instruction to Christian husbands in verse 7. And so we're going to follow that, uh, that structure as our outline this morning. And so for that reason, because again, expository preaching is just simply working through the text. Letting the text say what it says, right? Drawing out the meaning of the text and not using it as a jumping point off to something else. We're going to spend most of our time talking about what Peter talks about. Verses 1 through 6, talking about wives. But we will address husbands there at the end in verse 7. So let's consider here what instruction first Peter gives to wives. And he says in verses 1 through 6 to summarize that Christian wives submit to their husbands. Christian wives submit to their husbands. And in these six verses, Peter says six things about submission that are worth noting. The command of submission, the context of submission, the reason of submission, the means of submission, the example of submission, and the commendation of submission. We'll, talk, we'll go through those in order. It'll be sort of our mini points to go under this big, broad theme of the first point, Christian wives submit to their husbands. So first, the command to submit. Peter commands wives to be subject, he says in verse 1, or submit to their husbands. Now, before we apply this specifically to wives, let's just think about submission generally, right? This is a general idea. The word be subject, the Greek word be subject that's translated, in, that's translated that way in verse 1, is the same word that's used back in chapter 2, verse 13, when Peter commands all Christians to be subject to or submit to the governing authorities. And it's the same word he uses back in chapter 2, verse 18, when he commands Christian slaves to be subject or to submit to their masters. So at a basic level, Christian wives must act toward their husbands in the same way that Christian citizens act toward their civil leaders and in the same way that Christian slaves act toward their masters. And we need to understand, sort of take a step back, as I said, and understand that submission is a good word. We often think of, we often bristle when we hear that word, but it is a good word. It's a biblical word. It's a divinely inspired word and idea. The word in the broader Greek literature usually appears in military context to describe the arrangement, organization, and order of the Roman army in order to maximize its opportunity for victory and to minimize casualties and losses. The army must be ordered. Troops must be arranged properly. Weapons and munitions must be organized. And leadership must be ordered. Roman law did not see a distinction between the most highly ranked officer and the lowest ranked foot soldier. But each possessed different roles and responsibilities in order for the army to function at optimal efficiency for optimal success. And God has done the same thing for every institution that he has ordained. He has instituted the civil government, the church, and the home as the means through which he works to accomplish his purposes for creation. And in those institutions, he has determined an order by his sovereign will and good pleasure by, de by defining very clearly roles and responsibilities among those in those institutions in order to optimize success. In civil government, God has established that leaders rule over the citizens and that those citizens submit to those rulers. That is the divinely ordered arrangement for society. In a similar way, God has, in the church, established that 
elders would lead the church and that the church would submit to those elders. That is, again, a divinely ordained arrangement for the proper ordering of the church. And in a similar way, in the home, God has established that husbands lead their wives and that wives submit to their husbands. Again, that is his divinely ordained arrangement for maintaining and preserving order in the home. So why is there a resistance among all human beings to this idea of submission? Well, fundamentally, human beings don't want to submit to anything. It reminds me of when I was a kid. My brother and I would always fight, right? And my brother would always tell me, you're not the boss of me, right? Mom and dad would have to work. We were at home after school or in summertime, and I'm the one in charge because I'm the oldest sibling. And my brother would not, he would buck against those things I told him, and granted, maybe sometimes those, those, those commands that I would give them were not the most caring or loving or in his best interest. But regardless, he would always buck up and say, you're not the boss of me. And that's the cry of every sinful human heart. You're not the boss of me. But we need to remember that God is a God of authority. All authority belongs to him. God has ordained certain institutions in the created order to maintain and preserve order. Therefore, authority is a good thing. It is for our good in every way, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. I think of David's last words. The last words of David before his death. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. He says this, When one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, He, God, dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. You see the beautiful day we're having outside? Maybe a little bit chilly, but it's a beautiful day. There's not a cloud in the sky. The sun is shining brightly. Last night, the boys and I had an opportunity to go to the football game, and we, of course, the game starts at 6.30, so we're entering the stadium. We got there a little early last night. 5.30 or so, and it's just the sun is getting ready to set. And it is such a beautiful, beautiful scene, right? Think about just the beauty of a bright sun on a cloudless day and how it makes you feel, right? How it just kind of perks you up a little bit. How it gives you the opportunity to do all kinds of things outdoors. God is saying here through David, this is what authority is to all people. It is a good thing. It is God's gracious gift to us. And for that reason, he provides it to us in every realm of our lives. Now, the reason why we bristle, right? The reason why we resist authority, why we resist this idea of submission is because we are sinful people. And by nature, we want to unhinge ourselves from authority. Just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when they disobeyed God's command and rebelled against him. We imitate them when we refuse to submit ourselves to God. Because insubordination is part of our fallen nature, it shouldn't surprise us that we refuse to submit to God's divinely ordained leaders, the leaders He has placed over us. And so I would say this to all Christians, but certainly Christian wives, since this is the passage that we're dealing with this morning, that if you struggle with this idea of submitting to your husbands for whatever reason. That is a spiritual issue. Consider your own heart. Is your failure to submit to your husband an indication of your own rebelliousness against God? Do you see his 
do you see obedience to his command, not merely as submission to your husband, but as submission to God and to his authority? Because he is the one who has provided this commandment for you, this good commandment for you. So what do we mean by submission? That's just sort of submission, generally speaking. What do we mean by submission when we apply it to wives? The command to submit means that a Christian wife will order herself under the headship of her husband, whom God has designated to lead her. She will honor him as her head and follow his leadership. Even, again, Peter uses the word in verse 6, obey, when it says that Sarah obeyed her husband. She submitted herself to him by obeying her husband. Now, the context in which a wife obeys her husband is not the same as the context of a child obeying a parent or a slave obeying a master. A wife lives in one flesh union with her husband. God created the wife to be a companion that corresponds to him. That goes back to Genesis. That's from the creation, right? Genesis 2.18. She, the wife, bears the same divine image that her husband bears. And a Christian wife possesses the same Holy Spirit that her Christian husband possesses. Both are equally received by Christ. Both stand with equal footing at the cross. It seems that God designed marriage for the benefit of both husbands and wives. And if a husband's leadership is his good provision for his wife, I think it stands to reason that her support and counsel and partnership and oneness with him is God's good provision for him as well. So it is for obedience to God's will and thus for his glory and for her good that a wife will submit to her husband. To her husband. But again, so I want to, maybe I'm overstating the point here, but I want to just make sure we, we get this clear and drill down on this. Submission does not indicate inferiority in any way. There's no implication of inferiority in submission. Submission merely speaks to the state of relationships. So how does a citizenry relate to its leaders? By submission. They submit to them. How does a slave relate to its master? By submission. He relates, to, he relates to his master by submitting to him. How does a wife relate to her husband? By submission. She relates to him by submitting to him. Again, wives bear the image of God just as husbands do. Women are created in the image of God. There is no diminishment. There is no diminishing of the wife's image compared to her husband's. Both bear fully the image of God. And Genesis seeks to imply that without male and female, we cannot understand truly the image of God. Both bear it. Both represent it well. Wives find equal footing at the cross just as husbands do. Wives share in Christ's eternal inheritance just as husbands do. If you notice in verse 7, Peter tells the husbands, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. In other words, when we get to heaven, it's not going to be sort of a, a division between men and women, right? That men will have some special status or some special reward that women don't have. No, they're heirs of the same life that husbands have. And so if we consider the historical context of this letter, Peter, I think, here is making a profound statement about the dignity, personhood, and standing of women in the home, in the society, and in the church. The fact that he even addresses them, just as the fact that he addresses slaves, is a remarkable thing for this time period. Typically, people who are writing letters, writing treatises, writing essays, are not writing them to women and slaves, 
But Peter directly gives them this part of his letter to speak to them to show just how much dignity and worth and value and personhood they possess in the church, in the kingdom. So let's consider a little bit more about the context, the context of submission. I think Peter's instruction here reveals two important contextual clues about a wife's submission to her husband. First, you'll notice in verse 1 that a wife is to submit to her own husband, right? So this is not a carte blanche command for all women to submit to all men. Peter applies this command only to each marriage relationship, right? A wife submits to her own husband and not to every male. Secondly, Peter assumes a context here in which most Christian wives are married to non-Christian men. If you look back at verse 1, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, right? There is the, the suggestion or the implication that not all of these wives are married to Christian men. The even if here is an indicator that at least some, if not most, of the believing wives receiving this letter are married, are not, are married to men who are not believers. More than likely, these Christian wives came to faith in God, faith in Christ, at some point while they were married. They're not Christian women entering into a marriage relationship with a non-Christian man, but they came to faith when they were married. But for some reason, the, Christian hus- the, 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 the husbands did not possess the same faith. They did not believe the gospel. They didn't respond in faith to Christ. The ESV Study Bible, which, by the way, if you don't have an ESV Study Bible, you should get one. That's just a study reference. Uh, you get the hardback copy every so often. They go on sale, CBD or Amazon for like 25 bucks. You should get that and use it as a resource. It's one of the, it's a commentary that I use in my own sermon preparation. So if you don't have it as sort of a reference at home, when the next time it goes on sale, get yourself one. You don't have to get the nice leather edition with all of the frills. Just get the cheap, basic, hardback copy, okay? The ESV Study Bible, one of the notes for this first one says, For a Christian wife to have a different religion than her husband was quite astonishing for that culture. Plutarch, who was a Roman historian and moral philosopher who wrote about the same time that Peter wrote 1 Peter, advised wives that they should uphold the accepted status quo with regard to religion. Here's what he writes. A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the most first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door on superstitious cults and strange superstitions. So, of course, in Plutarch's day, Christianity would have been considered a superstitious cult. And therefore, it would have been improper for a woman to profess faith in Christ and become a Christian when her husband was still a pagan worshiping other gods. It's not that she can worship Jesus and the other gods as well. It's that she shouldn't even worship Jesus at all. If her husband worships other gods, she is to devote herself to those gods. So Peter's assumption here about these Christian wives is that they were married mostly to unbelieving husbands. And that reveals two important implications here, I think, for submission. First, like the government's authority and like a master's authority, A husband's authority in the home is not absolute. These Christian women are to be commended for putting their hope in the gospel, even when it upset cultural norms or brought disorder to the home. 
As we've said now for three weeks, it is better to obey God than men. And where a husband's authority severely impinges on God's authority, a Christian wife must obey God no matter what. At the same time, Peter's words to Christian wives are all the more striking. A Christian wife must still submit to her unbelieving husband. Faith in Christ does not dissolve the bonds of marriage or give her license to disorder the home just because she's a Christian. A Christian wife's ordinary disposition, her regular conduct in the home, is to submit to her husband. Peter's counsel comes in a historical context in which women did not have many rights. Husbands could be quite harsh and abusive, and wives had little recourse, legal recourse, to ameliorate their situation. And yet Peter says that these Christian wives, without many rights, with no power, and probably not much hope in their condition improving, should submit to their husbands. Now, I believe that most of the wives who are members of our church are married to believing husbands. So the implications that we can draw from Peter's exhortation here is that if Christian wives must submit to their unbelieving husbands, then it is all the more expected that Christian wives will submit to their believing husbands. And again, a believing husband's authority is not total or absolute. His authority has been delegated to him by God, and he's responsible to steward that authority well. At the same time, the general disposition, the, the regular conduct of a wife towards her husband in the home is submission. However, because the historical context is different, and because women do now live under different societal expectations for how a husband should treat his wife, if a Christian wife is suffering under an abusive husband, she should inform the elders of the church so that they can correct and even discipline him so that he begins to treat his wife in a manner conforming to God's word. So if there's any wives here who are enduring any kind of abusive situation in your home, do not think that submission just means you've got to wear it. I think you have a responsibility to come to the elders of the church and let us help you to pastorally care, not just for you, but for your husband. He needs to be disciplined in order to be able to do what God's word says he should do towards you. Well, why does Peter give this command in the first place? Why does Peter say that a wife should submit to her husband? Let's look at the reason for submission. And Peter suggests two reasons why a wife must submit to her husband. First, in the predominant case, what Peter's addressing here, addressing here in the letter, of Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands, a wife's submission serves an evangelistic purpose. A wife's submission serves an evangelistic purpose. If you look back at verse 1, right? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, if some are not believing, if your husband is not a believer, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So there's an evangelistic purpose for, an, for a believing wife to submit to her non-believing husband. Now, surely, a Christian wife can, I think should, speak the gospel to her unbelieving husband. But she must not badger him about it, which would either provoke him to anger, perhaps an abusive response, creating more suffering on her end, for sure, or it could lead him to a false profession in which he does not really believe, but gives sort of an outward profession just to kind of 
make her nagging go away. Peter here indicates that a Christian wife's submission is a powerful and persuasive testimony in and of itself to the point that an unbelieving husband may come to believe the gospel through her. The second reason Peter gives is that a a wife's submission to her husband glorifies God. A wife's submission to her husband glorifies God. Peter says in verse 2 that a wife's submission is reflected through a, is reflected through a respectful and pure conduct. A wife's submission is reflected through a respectful and pure conduct. And when a husband observes that submission, he sees her witness to Christ. There's no other reason why she would do that except that she is entrusting herself to God and obeying his word. Now, a wife's submission reflects her understanding of who God is, right? Her submission glorifies God in that it reflects her fear of God. Notice again in verse 2, the word respectful. The word is literally in Greek, fear, right? We've said this a couple different times. The word fear here is phobos. It's our word, we get the word phobia, terror, a dread at something. It's the same word used that Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 18. So the wife here has a, has a fear, right? But it's not a fear of her husband. If you look at verse 6, Peter says, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, and we assume there that the anything is at least in a large part a non-believing husband mistreating his wife. Yet her fear is not to her husband. Her fear is to whom? To God. Her fear is to God. It is her fear of God, right? Not terror or dread, but a deep respect for God, a deep awe of God. This fear will lead her to live in the way that he has commanded for her to live. Because she fears the Lord, she obeys him. And she makes submission to her husband a non-negotiable priority of of Christian living even when persecuted by him. Therefore, when a wife submits to her husband, she glorifies God because she is doing it as unto the Lord instead of as unto her husband. And it is for the glory of God that he calls Christian wives to submit to their husbands. Now, even though Peter's hope is that an unbelieving husband will be converted through the testimony of his believing wife as she regularly submits to him, he does not promise that this will happen. Notice that he says in verse 1 that they, non-Christian husbands, may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So even if a non-believing husband never comes to faith, or if a believing husband never appreciates his wife's submission, a wife can and should still submit to her husband because God is glorified in her submission. Okay? So how then should a wife submit to her husband, the means of submission? We see in verse 2 predominantly, but also verses 3 and 4, that a wife expresses submission to her husband through her godly conduct. Through her godly conduct. Peter connects a Christian's wife's submission to her conduct in verse 2. If you see, again, verse 2. Uh, we'll go back to verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So a wife's submission is expressed 
outwardly. It is visibly observed in a way that honors God and honors her husband. Her submissive conduct reveals her fear of God, her desire to please God, and her obedience to God's word. All that she does outwardly expresses and supports her submission. This outward godly conduct then begins where? Peter says in verse 4, within the heart. Godly conduct begins in the heart. The outward adornment of godly conduct, that is the way in which she appears and presents herself beautifully to her husband, begins, Peter says in verse 4, with a gentle and quiet spirit. That gentle and quiet spirit trusts God. It rests in the hope of the gospel. And it orients her life to the word of God. This condition, right, this outward conduct, reflects the right attitude and disposition towards God. And it frames her submission to her husband so that submission becomes the natural and normal part of how she lives her life. When a woman is trusting God, when she is looking to obey God's word, when she is seeking to live godly, these things will come out because they are within. What we do outwardly begins with what is happening inwardly. It's the normal, natural, normal part of her life. This kind of godly conduct, outward conduct, contrasts with pagan women who see their outward beauty from external adornments. Braided hair, gold jewelry, fine clothing. All of these were signs of immodesty and unchastity in the Roman world. These adornments in and of themselves are not sinful, but a, when a woman looks for her beauty and worth to come from these things, they reveal a heart of vanity. They reveal a heart that is haughty, a heart that is prideful, a heart that, dare I say, is rebellious against the Lord. A wife who instead desires to be godly will cultivate the gentle and quiet spirit in her own heart so that she can live in a way that honors God. Peter next provides an example of submission for wives, Christian wives, to follow. In verses 5 and 6, we see the example of these holy women like Sarah. Peter indicates here that wifely submission is not a Christian novelty, nor an unreasonable command. If you look at verse 5, Peter says, For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Holy women in times past who trusted God and hoped in his promise did this. They submitted to their husbands. Notice again the connection between the outward adornment and submission. The godly woman adorns herself and reveals the hidden beauty of her heart by submission. And Peter specifically names here Sarah in verse 6 as an example of godly submission. As a matriarch of the faith, she was a holy woman who hoped in God. And she lived out that holiness and hope in her submission to Abraham. Now, if you go back and read the stories of Genesis, you're going to find plenty of moments where Sarah did not show this kind of faith, right? There were times when she did not obey her husband, when she took the lead. And brought disorder to her home. So she's not perfect. But she is a holy woman. 
She is, she did fear God. But there were times where her sinful humanity came out. But what Peter says here is that the general pattern of her life, as we see it in the Old Testament, was to submit to her husband. Now, I would say here that living up to Sarah's example is not impossible. Yes, she was a holy woman. But Christian wives are also holy, right? In fact, that's one of the key themes of 1 Peter, that we are a holy people just as God is himself holy. We see that Sarah hoped in God. But Christian wives also hope in God, do they not? And again, that's another key theme of 1 Peter, that we live faithfully obeying God's word because we possess what? A living hope of eternal life with Christ. So a Christian wife's submission to her husband is not impossible. Yes, it is difficult because it, imp- it opposes a sinful, rebellious nature. Yes, it is difficult when an unbelieving husband mistreats his wife. And yes, it is difficult, especially when a, when a believing husband fails to obey God's word regarding how he should treat his wife. But it is not impossible. Why? Because God sanctified you. God has given you a new heart with new desires. It is not impossible because God has given you his word so that you should know how to submit. And it is not impossible because he has given you his spirit to empower you to obey all of his commands, including this one. And that is why Peter closes this section with a commendation. Verse 6, he says, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Christian wives who follow Sarah's example are her children. They are born of her. You might remember Galatians 4 and the, the allegory that Paul tells of Isaac and Ishmael, right? Who was the real son of Abraham? Well, they're both biological sons, but Paul says there, no, Isaac was, or Ishmael was the son of the flesh, but Isaac was the son of the spirit. Isaac was the true heir. Isaac was the real child of Abraham. And so in this way, those who follow Sarah's example, those who submit to their husbands, are her children. They are spiritual offspring from her. They are like her in every way. Women who do this are holy women. They belong to that category of holy women who hoped in God. And they show themselves to be God's people. And so a wife's submission is a good thing because God declares it to be so. Christian wives who submit to their husbands do real spiritual good. Their fear of the Lord orients them in this way and enables them to overcome all other fears. So Christian wives should aspire to submit to their husbands. It is a good thing that pleases God. And by her submission, a Christian wife can deepen her assurance of faith and her hope in eternal life. Now at this point, Peter does something quite unusual by turning his attention to Christian husbands. Again, if you think about just the ordering of this passage, when Peter spoke to the, the believers who were just citizens of Roman society, he addressed them, not their leaders. When Peter addressed slaves, Christian slaves, he addressed them, not just their masters. But here Peter is addressing not just the wives, but he's also addressing the husbands. And what is the instruction that he gives 
to husbands. Christian husbands show honor to their wives. Christian husbands show honor to their wives. Now, what does Peter mean here by honor? As we saw back in verse 17 of chapter 2, honor means treating other people as special, doing more than what's expected, and having a good attitude in doing it. Christian husbands are to treat their wives with dignity, worth, and grace because they bear the image of God and possess the living hope of salvation. They are not to treat their wives as inferior or second-class citizens. They are not to lord their headship over their wives, but they are to fulfill their obligation to live lovingly in the one-flesh relationship to which God has joined them together. Now, contextually speaking, the context here of the husband's work of honor, this honoring of wives was countercultural in the Roman world, right? Wives had few rights, and abuse was socially accepted. And in this way, we see that Christianity indicted the norms of the world and promoted a new ethic rooted in God's word and his created order. In fact, when Peter says here that husbands must live with their wives in an understanding way, he's not talking about the need for husbands to understand their wives and to show them deference based upon their needs or preferences. He's talking about living with them with an understanding of God's will. The phrase, understanding way, is literally translated as according to knowledge. They're to live with their wives according to knowledge. What knowledge? Obviously, it's the knowledge of God's word. Tom Schreiner writes, Husbands then should live together with their wives, informed by the knowledge of God's will, of what he demands them to do. So the honor a husband shows his wife is informed by God's word. And a husband who is truly oriented to God's word will show honor to his wife. Just as a wife is expected to obey God's word that calls her to submit to her husband, so also a husband, Christian husband is expected to obey God's word that calls him to honor his wife. Now a husband's honor for his wife is also informed by his wife's standing in Christ and her future destiny with him. So here Peter's going to get into sort of the, the reason why a husband shows honor to his wife. Again, notice in verse 7 that the Christian wife is an heir of the grace of life. She is an heir of the grace of life. In other words, because she has believed in the gospel, she is in Christ. She is part of the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, and the people for God's own possession. She's been predestined by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and redeemed by the Son. She possesses a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for her, and she will take possession of it at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter notes that these things are just as true for Christian wives as they are for Christian husbands. So even though God has ordered a functional, ordained a functional order, of headship and fellowship in the home, a Christian husband and Christian wife positionally share the same status and destiny in Christ. And for this reason, he must honor her as he would any other Christian brother. She is his Christian sister, and he should treat her with the respect and the love and the honor that is becoming of any Christian brother or sister in Christ. 
Peter finally notes at the end of verse 7, a consequence for husbands who dishonor their wives. Right? And what is that consequence? He says that they're to, they're to, they're to, 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 to uh, live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to women as the weaker vessel, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Consequence of dishonoring is the hindering of their prayers. How is that possible? Remember the greatest commandments, right? Where are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second one? Just like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. And we cannot do one without the other. We cannot and do not love God as we ought when we do not love our neighbor. And by loving our neighbor, we show our truest love for God. Since a husband's nearest neighbor is his wife, failing to honor his wife regularly as is God's will, reveals a deficit in his love for God, strains his relationship with God, and thus stymies his prayers. Peter's larger point here, I think, is that it is impossible for a Christian husband to have an abiding and flourishing relationship with God when he is walking out of step with God's will and dishonoring his wife. Again, the same could be said for Christian wives. It is impossible for a wife to thrive spiritually when she continually resists God's command to submit to her husband. So the goal must be for Christian husbands and Christian wives to trust God's word, to trust God, to believe his word, and to walk in faithfulness to that word no matter what. At the end of the day, isn't this how we should just live life generally? In every aspect of life, trust God, believe his word, and do it. Submit to it. Walk it out. So, this idea here of submission and honor in the home isn't just something that is relegated to the home. It's not just simply Peter kind of sort of laying a target on the home. He's really applying the broader Christian principle to the home. What happens in the home as wives submit to their husbands and husbands honor their wives is just a matter of simple Christian faithfulness. So Peter's words for Christian wives and Christian husbands, they are hard. They are very hard. But they are not impossible. And the encouraging thing that I take away from this passage and from this book is that God has given us every resource for us to do what he says. We simply need to trust God and be faithful to him. The good news is that God honors our faithfulness. And throughout this letter, Peter reminds us of the hope that is ours in Christ. Though we face many kinds of grievous trials, and perhaps even in the home, God is proving the genuineness of our faith that gives us the assurance that we are his and that the hope of eternal life is ours. And may that be that hope of that inheritance. May that hope of what comes in the future, what God has promised us, may the hope of salvation and the certainty of who God is and the truth of his word help us to live faithfully before him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful, Lord, for all of it. We are reminded, Lord, that every jot and tittle has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that it is for teaching, it is for rebuke, it is for correction, and it is for training in righteousness. So that the man of God and the woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray, Lord, 
that you would help us to do these good works as you have commanded us to do. We pray your word has helped us in all these ways this morning to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness so that you might be glorified and that your good might be accomplished in our lives personally, but also in our homes and in our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.